This is the How Design Live podcast, hosted by programming partner Elise Bennett, national speaker, author of seven business books for creative professionals, and founder of marketing-mentor.com. Listen to her lively conversations with past and future How Design Live speakers about the business of creativity and creativity in business. Here's Elise Bennett. Have you ever wanted to become an author? And what does it mean to be an author if you're a designer? Do you have to be a writer too? Well, we answered these questions and many more in my latest interview with Bridget Watson Payne, who is the executive editor in charge of art and design books at Chronicle Books, a very well-known brand in the design industry, I don't have to tell you. I invited Bridget to speak on publishing for creatives this year at How Design Live as part of the Creative Freelancer track because content marketing is the future of marketing and becoming an author is a very effective type of advanced content marketing that you might want to consider. I can tell you from my own experience, having authored seven books in the last 20 years, it tends to be a very impressive calling card. So listen, and then come hear more from Bridget at How Design Live, May 7 through 10 in Chicago. The Creative Freelancer track is on Thursday and Friday of that week. That's May 9th and 10th. And it's very affordably priced, especially if you use my promo code for 10% off. That code is MENTOR10. I hope to see you there. Hello, Bridget. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Please introduce yourself. I'm Bridget Watson-Payne, and I'm an executive editor at Chronicle Books. We're an independent book publisher located in San Francisco, and uh, I've worked at Chronicle for 17 years. I help head up our art book publishing list. I also work on some non-book formats, um, which means I both acquire and edit uh, a lot of really cool art, design, illustration, photography, books, and products. That sounds really interesting. And of course, Chronicle Books is, I don't want to say notorious because that has a negative (laughs) connotation, but I mean, it is very famous in the design world and everybody wants to be a Chronicle Book author, right? (laughs) Sometimes I get that impression. Although other times it depends on the context. You go someplace else and you're like, I work at Chronicle Books expecting maybe a little reaction. Everyone's like, So, well, I do in general get the feeling that everybody wants to be an author and especially in the design world, everyone wants to be a Chronicle book (laughs) author. But what if I asked you, like, why? Why does everybody want to be an author? What would you say? Well, I think there's a few different reasons. And I think one of them really goes back to the book as physical object. You might remember, you know, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, there was great announcement yet again of the demise of the physical book, you know, that we were all going to read nothing but ebooks now that there were Kindles and e-readers and so forth. And honestly, for reading books, for books with words, those have become, you know, a really great and useful tool. But for visual books, for books with images in them, which is mostly what I work on, uh, we make ebooks uh, of our books, but by and large, people want them as physical objects. You want to spend time with them, you, you want to hold them in your hands and look at them in a physical, tactile, you know, human person with a body kind of way. And I think um, when people are thinking about how they want to showcase their work, how they dream of seeing their work, so often it's in print and the sort of 
ultimate pinnacle of in print is in print in a book, because then you can really literally hand this magical technology to another person physically in your hands and like, here's my work. This is what I've done. It's sort of an accomplishment that speaks for itself. And that makes me wonder if being an author then in this case for this type of book is a different kind of author because, I mean, is there a lot of writing involved or is it just the fact of having a book? You know, it varies, but yes, I think you're, you're touching on something that's very relevant. When I tell people I'm a book editor and when I say I have authors, most people immediately in their brain, their brain does a synonym and says author equals writer. You know, that, that, that we picture Ernest Hemingway typing away on his typewriter or something, that that's what an author is. And if you're an author of fiction or nonfiction, like, yeah, it's not so far off. But I do work with a few writers. Got a couple of great authors who are writers. But the vast majority of my authors are not writers. They are illustrators, graphic designers, photographers, and fine artists. Um, and what it means for a person in one of those disciplines to author a book uh, is, you know, quite different than what it means for a writer to do so. And the amount of text and who creates that text can vary widely from case to case. You might have a photography book that has you know, a short introduction in the front from a, say, a curator or an art historian. It might have captions throughout, you know, paired with the photographs. And that might be all the words that are actually typeset anywhere in that book. Uh, the vast majority of it is pictures by the author who is a photographer. On the other hand, you might have a visual book by a designer, say, that has a lot of words, and the words might be words written by that person. I've worked with many visual creatives who are also great writers, or it might be created by someone else. I've worked with visual creatives who said to me from the get-go, I am not a writer. I had one person say to me once, I write like a third grader. You know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to write words. I want to make visuals. You know, and then we have a conversation about, okay, well, where's the text? How much text does there need to be? Where is it going to come from? Who's going to write it? So that's sort of part of the joy of putting together these kinds of books is everyone is a bit of a case study, you know, in sort of figuring out, okay, what are the content elements we need? Where do they all come from? It's exactly the kind of problem solving that designers tend to be very good at. Right. And the reason we're talking today, by the way, I know you know this, but for the listeners, is because you are going to be at How Design Live, and especially in the Creative Freelancer track, talking about the topic is publishing for creatives, should you become an author? Because that whole track is pretty much all about advanced content marketing. And, you know, being the author of a book is certainly one of the more advanced content marketing activities and mm -hmm. thought leadership activities. So I'm curious how you think about what you do in the context of content marketing. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, when they do a book as an author, a visual book especially, it becomes a calling card for them. You know, they, it is something that they are going to use in all kinds of ways probably to lead to other opportunities, um, you know, where they're going to be able to show it to people that they want to work with as clients, where they want to do speaking engagements, where they want to get an art show, where, you know, all kinds of opportunities that might come their way, where the book becomes their portfolio, their business card, you know, just sort of their immediate, like, this is me, here's what I've done, you know, again, it sort of speaks for itself without having to make 
maybe a big marketing spiel. You're sort of like, let me just send you my book and you can see what, I, what I'm right. all about. So I think from an author's perspective, that is one of the very you know, concrete, if somewhat intangible, benefits of doing a book. I don't know if it's the main reason very many people do books. I think most people do books because they have something to say. You know, they have, they have a message of some sort that they want to communicate to the larger, you know, reading public. Um, but I think in terms of sort of ancillary benefits that some people have thought about a lot and some people have not thought about much at all, which is kind of where my talk comes in, is like, let's consider this. Let's consider what a book is going to do for you in your career. Because let's be completely honest, most people do not become rich as authors. Most people are not doing it for the big bucks, like rolling around in a big pile of money like Scrooge McDuck. Um, you know, John that's what I was John Grisham, Stephen yeah. King, sure, you know, lottery winners, sure. But I think, you know, and if all goes well, you will make money, but it's not usually the first and foremost pe reason that people do it. I think most people do it because they have something they want to communicate. They want to see their work presented in a certain way. They have an idea that they would work on even if nobody was paying them, you know, a passion a nagging thought that won't leave them alone, you know, something that they really want to put out there. Which still, I'm assuming, is best manifested in this particular format, as opposed to, I mean, now there are just so many media, right? Video. Like, so what is a book these days? Because I have a couple of clients, actually designers, who used to do book covers and now they do video because that's what books are. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting you say that because I've got a couple of, you know, points I've thought about a lot over the years. Um, you know, first and foremost, the book as a content receptacle, as a container for content. And when I look at book proposals, I think about a lot of different factors. But one of the things I'm always thinking about is, is a book the right container for this content? Is the best optimum receptacle you could put this content in because some content is phenomenal is like drop dead amazing but the more you look at it you think that's a gallery show or that's a podcast or that's a magazine article that's long-form journalism that's you know there's a lot of other things that something might be and sort of it can be tempting to sort of round peg square hole an idea into a container that maybe isn't actually the optimal best container for it can you give an example um, I, uh, there's this example that's nagging in the back of my mind. I can't remember the exact details, but I, not so long ago, was looking at a body of photography that was just, I just, I can't remember what it was, but it was, the, the feeling that sticks with me is that it was just knock your socks off amazing, drop dead gorgeous, so compelling, but it was also extremely detailed and at book size, you would have lost the detail. You could have, you would have gotten it more or less if you made a big book, but what you really wanted was to walk into a gallery space and see them at you know ten feet by ten feet and walk up to them and be immersed in this world, rather than sitting on your couch looking at a you know twelve inch by twelve inch book or something. Um, it felt like the wrong physical size for that particular mm -hmm. content. That's sort of one you know most literal obvious thing. Other times, the amount of content you know I've I've seen. I remember a photojournalism feature um, that felt great, but it didn't feel like it should be expanded all the way to book length. It felt like that would get repetitive 
too much, you know, but that if it was tighter, if it was like a long magazine piece, it would be really impactful um, and maybe reach its audience better. And I guess that's your job as an editor is to figure out what is the best way to deliver this message or this material. Right. And because I also work on non-book formats as well as books, so that's things like paper products, stationery, note cards, journals, and we're branching out more and more into other things, pens, pencils, keychains, ceramics, you know, we're putting content on all kinds of materials now. And one of the challenges is I remember early on in my career, I got a book proposal for a book about Polaroid photography. And it felt a little, a little, a little light to be a book. There wasn't quite enough content there. But I thought this would make a really good set of note cards, beautiful images. And we made them into note cards. And it is one of Chronicle's best-selling note cards, like ever. Mm. But we had to do that pivot of a book is not the right shape for this, but something else we do might be. You know, so sometimes we're having those conversations. And is sometimes the artist attached to an image of what the ultimate manifestation is going to be and then resistant to you saying, this is really note cards, not a book. Right. Yes and no. I mean, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Like I've definitely had conversations with people where I've said, hey, I see another application for this. Are you interested? And they were like, nope, I'm not. I'm going to (laughs) go pitch my book elsewhere and make the book I want to make. And I think more power to you. That's exactly what you should do. But other times people are looking for a more collaborative relationship. You know, they, they maybe they aren't sure what they want to do with this content. They're still trying to figure it out. And an idea I might propose might actually, you know, be something they hadn't thought of before that would be helpful. So right. it, it, it's, it's, you know, every conversation, it's one of the reasons my job is never boring, is that every conversation is new. You know, we're always having a different one-on-one, you know, sort of dialogue about what is this thing, what is it that the author wants it to be, and what's the best version of that that it could possibly be. So let's talk a little bit about book proposals and Mm -hmm. what you're looking for in a book proposal or in a pitch. I mean, I imagine this is part of what you're going to talk about in your session. This is a lot of what I talk about in my session. (laughs) Exactly. So without like giving you a summary of my slides, which would be maybe a little boring in this form, but um, I, so um, in terms of the actual pitch, um, some of the tips that I give are to lead with some visuals. If you actually follow the submission guidelines on a book publisher's website of how to write a submission, what you would end up with is about a 27-page Word document. Mm-hmm. And if you are a visual person talking to other visual people, you've got to show the images. I, you'd be amazed how often I get book proposals for visual books that have no images included. Mm. And I have to follow up and be like, hey, can I see the images? Um, <laughs> so having you know the very first page be a big, beautiful, some sort of imagery, uh, be that illustration photography, some kind of amazing typography, graphic design, and whatever that is, so that I'm immediately immersed in the visual world of this project. Then maybe you tell me a bunch of stuff in your Word document, and then at the end, you get a lot more visuals, something like that. So that's one. Of, that's, that's the kind of practical tip I would give in my talk about how to pitch. Um, the other thing when I'm like saying, what do I look for in a book proposal, has to do with how I evaluate book proposals, which is a bit of a different question. And One of the most important things in that regard, again, I've got a whole laundry list of them that I'll talk about on the day, but one of them is audience. Having a clear understanding of who the audience for your book is and being able to communicate that to me in your proposal, because then it's I'm tasked with figuring out, can Chronicle reach that audience? 
with a book. Um, because if, but what if it's for everyone, Bridget? There's no such thing as a book for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> if you say a book is for everyone, you're really saying it's for no one. Because there's no book in the world that everybody reads. It doesn't exist. Um, even if your book is for a very broad, very wide audience, there are parameters of who those people are. Um, so being, you know, figuring out the right, the sweet spot, the not for everyone, but for, is it for adults or children, for starters? Mm-hmm. You know, there there you just ruled out a good chunk of everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who who is this book for? And then not going so narrow and niche with that audience that it's too small. You know, that, uh, you know, if it's for polo players who like rye toast on Wednesdays, okay, we have a different problem. <laughs> like that, you know, that finding that sweet spot between everyone and like the long tail is, you know, exactly what we do. And I've heard a lot about the importance of quote unquote platform for an author. So would you define it and talk about how important that is to you? Okay. So what everyone thinks of when they think of author platform is online platform, right? And that is a very real and important thing in the world we currently live in. And that might be things like number of Instagram followers, number of newsletter subscribers, number of podcast listeners, downloads, et cetera, et cetera, stats for your website, all that stuff. If you're able to point to an active and engaged, not just ghostly numbers, but people who are actually engaging with your content online in significant numbers, a publisher is going to love that. Let's be honest. It's extremely helpful. And authors need to be prepared to help promote their books. Maybe there was some fictitious, I sort of think it was fictitious era in the past where that wasn't the case and you didn't need to help promote your book. But if that was ever the case, it is certainly no longer the case because with the advent of social media, authors have access, direct access to fans of theirs that the publisher does not have access to, right? So you can get to your people directly in a way that we can't. We can get to the media, we can get to retail stores, we can get to all kinds of people, but not to your dedicated fans. So yes, online platform is great. If you've got a big one, that's a selling point for your project. Wonderful. But I think the thing that people forget about is that I think there's another aspect of platform, which is um, real life, in-person platform and hustle. You know, I have some authors who have small social media followings, but who are out there all the time doing speaking engagements or art shows or conferences or or affairs of various kinds of events where they are meeting and talking to their fans in real life all the time and they are hustling in the real world. And while that's not as flashy as having, you know, however many bajillion, you know, followers or whatever online, it can be very effective in moving books if someone is really connecting with their people out there in real life. I have two more questions for you. Okay. The first one is, um, if someone is trying to decide, because it's so easy to self-publish these days, although probably more expensive to self-publish the kind of book that we're talking about, but if someone is trying to decide between self-publishing and finding a publisher or going through the book proposal process, how would you advise them or how should they consider the two options? Yeah, I think that the sort of most common narrative about self-publishing today, which has changed from even a few years ago, are these fiction bestsellers that came about being self-published usually on Amazon, where someone wrote a novel, maybe tried to get it published a bunch, it didn't happen, then they self-published it, and then it became a huge bestseller. And 
that's cool. Like that's a thing, but I don't think it's as relevant to visual publishing. It is certainly possible to self-publish visual books, but I don't think they are making a splash in the world the way some of those, you know, sort of famous stories of fiction successes are. Um, So there's that, you know, making the distinction between a, a reading book and a visual book, I think is one important piece. Spending money versus earning money is obviously another piece to think about. Um, But I think really some of the greatest benefits of working with a publisher have to do with collaboration. Your collaboration with your editor and making your book the very best that it can be. Uh, Then subsequent collaboration with the publisher's, you know, design and production department to make a beautiful book of high quality. And then perhaps most of all, not to sell the the making of the book side short, but, um, you know, distribution, sales and marketing, you know, being able to have a book that reaches a wide variety of retail environments, um, different countries around the world, different places where it's sold. You know, I think, you know, from a, from a just purely author perspective of what, what, what have you done for me lately? You know, I think that's a big one. Um, but I do think on the other hand, authors need to think about what do they want to publish a book for? You know, wh- why do they want to publish this book? And what, what is the purpose of the book? Because if really all you're looking for is a portfolio, basically, a sort of like, here is my work, the work of Bridget Watson Payne, you know, in, a book, in book form so that I can show it to people. That might not be the most commercial proposition as a, a trade book, you know, unless your name is a thing unto itself, you know, in the world. But if you're a mid-career person, you know, maybe that's not the most commercial book but it might be something that would be very valuable for you to have. And then maybe self-publishing does make sense. I think I never want to rule out any options categorically because I think there are a lot of situations where these different options might make sense for different uh, outcomes. And is one of the benefits of self-publishing the fact that you don't have to manufacture, you know, hundreds or thousands of them at a time that it can be done on demand? Or do you also publish on demand? No, we do not publish on demand. And um, I wonder about that. I mean, in terms of if if an individual is self-publishing, yes, it is very good that they do not have to try and fund a trade publishing size print run because that would be untenable almost for any individual unless you were, you know, in the 1% or something. So the fact that once you've decided to self-publish something, you can, you know, make exactly as many as you need or want is very handy. Um, I don't know, though, because it is a publisher's responsibility to set print runs, handle all the printing, handle all the inventory, take care of all of that. I think for the most part, that back end is, you know, I won't go so far as to say invisible, but kind of not super relevant to all authors of trade publishing. They don't have to worry about it very much. It's just sort of, you know, we're taking care of that in the background and they can ask questions if they want, but it's not top of mind the way it would be if they were trying to budget for, gee, how many of these do I need versus how many can I afford to print? You know, kind of if you're basically, anytime you DIY anything, you become your own bookkeeper, your own, you know, financial advisor, your own everything. So you have more control, but you also have more responsibility. All right. Last question. One of your key takeaways for the session at How is the confidence to brainstorm book ideas and decide whether authorship is for you. And so we've talked a little bit about how to decide, but I want to focus 
finally on the idea of confidence. And because I see so many creative professionals, especially using a lack of confidence as an obstacle to do the things that they really want to do. And so I'm just curious how you see confidence in that whole process. I'm of the opinion uh, that knowledge and education are one of the biggest things to bolster confidence, that one of the biggest hits to confidence happens when you feel like you don't know what you're doing or you don't know what's going on. And publishing can sometimes be a confusing and somewhat opaque industry. And I think if, you're, if you feel like you're an outsider sitting outside of this industry, not understanding how it works, not understanding what's going on or how decisions are being made, feeling like it's just a bunch of evil gatekeepers who are trying to keep you from making your book, I think that's very detrimental to your confidence, you know, that you're sort of up against the man and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and the reason I'm doing this talk and the reason I like to do talks, you know, in general is I don't think anybody in the publishing industry wants this information to be secret. I think we want the creative people out there to know how it all works, how to reach us, how to pitch a project. I would like to get good projects from smart, intelligent, amazing creative designers. Of course I would. You know, and that helping people have industry knowledge fosters confidence and that in turn fosters good projects. I just want to emphasize what you just said, because I feel like it goes <laughs> against what so many people seem to believe, like the evil gatekeepers that you referred to, that you are literally looking for book ideas, right? Right. If I don't have book ideas, I don't I don't have anything to do. Right. I, mean, I <laughs> you know, I mean, finding good talent, finding good ideas is literally my bread and butter. And does that mean I'm going to publish every single thing that comes along? Of course not. You know, I'm always responsible for figuring out if something is a good fit. If it's not a good fit, I would be doing everybody a disservice if I went ahead and signed it up anyway. You know, I, a rejection is an essential part of this process because if I know it wouldn't be a good fit at Chronicle, I'm going to send you on your merry way so you can go find someplace where it would be a good fit, where you'll be happy and your book will get what it needs. And so I never want to seem to be sort of Pollyanna-ish and being like, everyone should just make books and they'll all just get published and it'll be great. Like sometimes this is a, you know, a harder process than that. But I think it's invaluable to have an openness of conversation because that's how people are going to do their best work and that's how I'm going to find all the stuff that I can make. And now I've thought of one final question. Okay. Which is, uh, I'm always very interested in email, let's call it, email communication and people uh -huh. not responding or not responding quickly enough or other people feeling like they're being ignored or being ghosted. And so I'm curious, how do you handle, I guess, the, the inquiries that come to you? Do you respond to everything? Do you respond right away? Does silence mean no? Like, how do you think about that? Okay. So there's a little bit of a difference between corporate policy for incoming submissions that come just quote unquote over the transom, you know, just people just send us stuff versus things that I maybe personally get. So I'm going to talk more about what I, how I personally handle my incoming email. So if I get a pitch in my inbox, I usually would respond to it within 24 hours, assuming I'm around and just say, I got this. 
I'm looking forward to taking a look at it. Um, and then typical publishing timelines, and this is on our website, this is everywhere, you kind of, if you take a minute to look around, is four to six weeks to review a proposal. And does that mean I'm actually sitting there reading your proposal word by word for four weeks? Like, obviously not. It's because there's a queue. You know, we get a lot of projects, so there may well be some in line before yours. And uh, it's not just that I'm looking at them alone. I'm often having internal conversations with other folks here about it, et cetera. So I aim within about four weeks to then get back to everybody and tell them either that I'm interested in, you know, continuing to have a conversation with them or that it's not going to be for us. And I feel like that's just, you know, common courtesy. But it is true that in some corners of the industry, the volume of proposals is so high, and I mean extremely high, that it's not possible or practical to get back to everyone. And a lot of publishers will say in their submission guidelines and very clearly on their website, we only get back to you if we're interested. And you can, if, if the time window has elapsed and we haven't heard from us, you can take that to mean, you know, that it's a pass. So I think the main thing is just to be really clear um, with folks up front about what they can expect. Excellent. Agreed. Thank you so much, Bridget. And please tell everyone where they can find more about you and more about Chronicle Books. So I am at BridgetWatsonPain.com and Chronicle Books is at ChronicleBooks.com. If they want to pitch you an idea, what should they do? Ah, they should send to um, an email address, which is submissions at ChronicleBooks.com. And they can address their email in the letter body of the email to me. Dear Bridget Watson Payne, and it will get forwarded to me. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's great to have done this. I really enjoyed it. And we'll see you at How. Yeah. <laughs> 